Hello, everyone. Welcome to Awaken Your Soul's Journey, the podcast that explores the transformative power of grief. I'm your host, Angela Clement, and I'm here to guide you on a profound journey of healing and self-discovery. Each episode, you will be introduced to experts, authors, and individuals who have experienced grief firsthand to share their stories, insights, and wisdom. Together, we will explore many facets of grief and shed light where there is darkness. Throughout this podcast, we will explore different tools and techniques that can support you in your healing process. From mindfulness and meditation to creative expression and spiritual practices, we will provide you with a diverse range of resources to help you navigate your grief. Whether you have experienced a tremendous loss or simply want to gain a deeper understanding so you can support someone else, this podcast is for you. So if you're ready to embark on this awakening journey with us, make sure to subscribe. Together, let's explore, learn, find healing, and embrace the transformation that awaits us. Hey everyone, you're going to love my special guest today. Understanding what goes on in our brain when we're grieving can be a huge comfort. And I just want to let you know before I introduce our special guest to sign up for my newsletter at healingenergy.world, where you'll find out more about all the resources I offer. And you'll be able to be a part of the Awaken Your Soul's Journey community, where you can find comfort and the support you've been searching for. So my special guest today is Mary Frances O'Connor. She's an associate professor at the University of Arizona Department of Psychology, where she directs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab. She earned a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Arizona in 2004, and following a faculty appointment at UCLA, she returned to the University of Arizona in 2012. Her research focuses on a wide range of emotional responses to bereavement. In particular, she investigates the neurobiological aspects of grief with functioning neuroimaging. Dr. O'Connor also studies difficulties adapting following the death of a loved one, termed prolonged grief. Her recent research has included how aspects of cultural grieving may not be included in current research and how bereavement could be considered a health disparity. Dr. O'Connor's recent book, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss, has garnered praise from peers and literary critics alike and has led to speaking engagements around the world. Help me welcome to the podcast, Mary Frances O'Connor. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much to my special guest today, Mary Frances O'Connor, who is spending a little bit of time with us today uh, to explain a little bit more about grief in the brain. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Angela. Yeah, and, and I know that the listeners are going to really want to know a little bit more about you and how you got started into all of this work that you do. Well, from a research perspective, uh, I'm uh, trained as a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist. And so my research has really focused on sort of why does grief 
hit us so hard and 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 how does does that grief experience unfold what's going on you know in the brain for example that that creates that response in us but of course you know there's always a more personal side to this work as well and you from a from a personal perspective my experience of grief really started when i was pretty young um when i was 13 uh, my mother was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And so that was, uh, you know, I don't know how better to describe it, but uh, sort of grief came to our household. Now, she actually lived for another 13 years, which, you know, was just a miracle, really. But it meant that I became really familiar with you know, sort of thinking about death and loss. And so when I started doing research, I realized that I felt really comfortable talking with people who were grieving and, and interviewing them and then trying to, you know, sort of match up what they were telling me about their experience with, you know, brain images and, and, and blood draws and so forth. So hopefully between sort of the professional interest and the personal interest, I've been able to weave together something that might be helpful for other people. Absolutely. And I know from the people that I work with and, and people who know that your work find it really comforting to be able to understand a little bit more about how the brain works, because there's so many things that happen to you that make you wonder if you're okay, like if you're maybe even going crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Grief is so much more intense than a lot of people expect, I think. But also, like you say, you know, we don't really talk a lot about what grief really feels like. And so I think many of our experiences feel just as you say, really foreign, like, wait, is this normal? Should this be happening? And so I think thinking about, you know, what the response is in the brain and the body can help us to feel more normal, to feel like, oh, there is a reason that that my mind is reacting this way. Mm, yeah, because there, there were things that happened to me. I know, um, for instance, I couldn't get over the fact that I was me and not we. Every time I put out plates, I put out two. Every time we went to a restaurant and asked, they asked how many seats, I would always add an extra. Yeah. And it took me a long time to get through that. Yes, yes. And, you know, I think of this sometimes, I think of grieving as a form of learning, really. And, and learning is not something you just do overnight. It's not like you suddenly you know, when a loved one has died, all of those habits suddenly change. That's just not realistic. Um, and, you know, specifically, I think that that our brain, in a funny sort of way, gets in gets in the way of our learning that they're really gone. And that may sound a little funny to people, but there's a good reason for this, that that when our loved one is alive, that you know, believing that they are out there, even when we can't see them, right? Even when they're not in our presence, you know, if, you're, if your husband goes to work, your children go to school, it's not like you don't know that they're there and you know that they will be back at the end of the day. And so that's how the brain is operating. The plan is we will all be together again. 
And so when a loved one dies, you know, which fortunately is really unusual circumstance, our brain still believes that they're out there for a long time. And so we keep acting in the world as though they're out there, just exactly in the ways that you describe. Um, and and we're not crazy, right? So we we do have a memory system in the brain as well. You know, we can we can remember being there, we can remember being at the funeral, but this belief, you know, that attachment neurobiology gets in the way of us really understanding that they're gone and aren't coming back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you talk about that whole attachment. And it makes sense to me, you know, if you live with somebody for 35 years, there's going to be some and you talk about um, pathways that have been developed that, that are really ingrained. Yes. I mean, physically ingrained when we when we bond with someone, you know, and you fall in love with the person who becomes your spouse or you fall in love with your baby, those relationships are deeply encoded in the brain. Who is this special person, right? This, how did they smell and look and, and sound? And, and that ingrained aspect in the brain, it's, it's physiologically in the brain. It, uh, falling, falling for our one and only changes the way proteins are folded, changes the way neurons are connected. And so those changes don't just go away overnight. It's a, it's a real learning curve, um, that people are on when they've lost a loved one. Yeah. And so then, you know, when, when these triggers, we call them triggers, grief triggers or grief bursts. A lot of people have different names for them, but it's like that brain recognizing that that's not the same as it was, right? There, there's something wrong. And then um, I know a friend of mine refers it to as a brain freak out. Like it just, yeah. all of a sudden you can start crying or all of these emotions come to the surface. So what do we do with that? You know, I guess that's a question like when we're so overwhelmed with that. Yeah, the the two streams of information, you know, cannot both be true. On the one hand, you you have a memory, you know that they've died. On the other hand, you're still sort of operating in the world as though they're alive. And there will be these moments where those two things, you know, the brain knows, wait, this can't, this these can't both be true. And that usually causes a lot of distress and waves or bursts or, um, you know, outpouring of grief. I think, you know, I think about it as having a whole toolkit of things to do to cope with those moments. Because it isn't that any one coping strategy is the best one. Um, it really does depend on what's happening, right? So the best tool in that situation, the best coping strategy in that situation has to match whatever the situation is that you're in. So, you know, for example, um, even avoidance gets a bad, you know, has a bad reputation, but there are moments, let's say you're walking into a work meeting and you suddenly are sort of reminded of something that, that really, you know, makes you well up and, it's perfectly understandable to say, you know what, now is, is I have this goal, I have to get through this work meeting, and 
I, I will give myself a chance to think about this, but I can't do it right now. And, and that's okay, right? To even be in denial, even pretend for those next 45 minutes, right? This hasn't happened. I am not, I am not widowed, you know, whatever it is just to get through that meeting. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, if that's your only coping strategy, <laughs> if you face every situation where you feel teared up with avoidance and, and, and trying not to feel it, well, then that's going to take your brain longer to really understand what's happened because it does have to resolve the fact that both of those things cannot be true to really understand and accept that they are gone and that changes your life and who you are. And so we need other strategies as well. We need you know, discovering how to comfort ourselves or how to reach out to someone else for comfort or how to, you know, um, calm our body, right? Going for a walk or doing some deep breathing or, um, you know, prayer or whatever strategy works. But the key is to have a bunch of different strategies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like how you bring up, you know, the fact that we can, I know my coach referred it to as putting those emotions into the, to the waiting room. Yes. <laughs> For that little bit of time that you can, you know, till you can find the time to really yeah. deal with it, but that those emotions can't be left there, that's that they right. actually have to be addressed at some point. And oh, like that's a great metaphor. I love that. The waiting room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She always said, well, you can make it as cushy as you want to, you know, you can. <laughs> that's great. That's wonderful. But you're right. They are still waiting, right? So mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And they do have to be dealt with. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, with your research in the brain, um, how do we, because at some point, you know, we go through all of these grief bursts and we spend time with our emotions and we develop these tools and, and hopefully we have some support from somewhere. Yes. And then how does our brain start to help us uh, restore like a meaningful life after our loss? You know, at some point we have to get to a point where we're ready to, to try some new things, maybe be that person that we weren't before you're, or we aren't anymore, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, how does the brain help us do that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The brain is, is, working for us all the time. It isn't like it just, you know, <laughs> it isn't like we say, hey, Siri, and then it starts, you know, recording whatever we're doing. But the brain is continuously having experiences. So, you know, you do the laundry and you don't put any socks in your loved one's drawer, right? The brain learns something from that, even though you didn't intend for it to learn something. And so this is why having new experiences are so important because the brain is deriving information from every experience that we have. And so allowing ourselves to have new experiences, even when they are painful, is an opportunity for the brain to understand, oh, this is how life is now. And life now can be painful and it can also be rewarding. So, you know, a, a really classic example, I think, is people who are widowed 
often don't want to go out to dinner with the couple friends that they used to go out to dinner with. And it's completely understandable. Of course, you are going to think about your loved one, you know, your your wife or husband while you're out to dinner with these good friends. And I'm not saying in every situation is it the right thing to do, but it can be a very important experience to go ahead and go to dinner anyway. Like you say, hopefully with their support. I mean, they they have to also know how hard it's going to be for you mm-hmm. and really want to see you anyway. And so, you know, what's interesting is the first time you go out to dinner, um, it is usually really painful and there is a lot of grief. And you may come home and think, well, I don't ever want to do that again. But it's, you know, it's like a slow upward spiral of our brain learning. And so if we go out to dinner again, we may come home and think, well, yeah, there was definitely, gosh, you know, so many memories of of my spouse. But we also had this conversation about a book I haven't, that, that they were recommending, and maybe I should get that. That sounded kind of interesting, right? There are these small things that start to filter in because, you are living in the present moment. You are living in, you know, relationship with with people who care about you. And those things start to filter in if we give them a chance by going ahead and doing things. Mm. I like that you bring that up because I think, you know, it's so painful to take that step. You know, it feels so awful. So awful. <laughs> and I was one of those people that... It, you know, luckily it was in my nature that I just thought, well, I'm, you know, rip the bandaid off quick yeah. and get it over with. Right. It was yeah. kind of like that, but it's not like that for everybody. Um, and, and it's comforting to know that over time, if you repeat those things, and I know I found this from my own experience that it does get easier. Yes. And, you know, there's ways to make it uh, sort of small too, right? You don't necessarily have to start by going out to dinner. Maybe you just meet up with them for coffee or you just, you know, meet up with them uh, on your way to doing something else, right? You you don't have to... I don't know. You don't have to make it into a whole production necessarily, but to see people and to connect with them, um, especially when they're people who really care about you and especially if they're people who have experienced grief themselves. So they, they really get it that those relationships often become much stronger and relationships where uh, you know, it's it's maybe not worth the investment tend to sort of fall away. And I'm not sure that's the worst thing in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I definitely found that. And it was actually surprising yeah. um, where the support came from and where it didn't. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just, you know, people's comfort with the fact that, you know, you're grieving and they they don't know what to do. Yeah, absolutely. It is so interesting. People talk about how their contact list changes, you know, after a, a an important loss like this. And it's funny because I teach a, an undergraduate psychology of death and loss course. 
And so these are very young people, uh, but many of them have had significant losses by the time they get to college. And many of them have had friends who've had significant losses. And we talk about how to support someone who's grieving. And it is interesting sort of intuitively to hear what they say about how they helped or how they learned to help a friend who is grieving. And they often talk about, you know, just doing something with the person or being with the person without even necessarily talking about the grief, but spending time with them. Um, you know, some of them would talk about going for a drive or um, going to a movie and just spending time. So the other person knew you were there and knew you were open to talking, but didn't feel pressured either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, because I'm thinking about, you know, one of my friends took me out because um, my husband passed at the end of October. Mm. So just before Christmas, mm. she took me out to to look at the Christmas lights. I actually had a couple of friends do that, just oh, drive around and look at the Christmas lights. Wonderful. And I thought, you know, that was so kind and nice yes. for them yes. to do that. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, what a wonderful way. You know, there's something about spending time together, but again, not feeling pressured. I think as a grieving person, we often don't really know how we're feeling. It's hard to articulate how we're feeling. There, It feels like a lot of pressure to make sure we feel normal and we don't feel like we're a burden to the person who we're spending time with. And so that kind of activity that's really low key, but offers an opportunity both to be distracted and to talk if you want to, that's a wonderful, wonderful way to spend time with someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we just don't know this. Yeah. <laughs> Naturally, we just don't know this. So yeah. before I lost my husband, you know, I had other friends that had lost their spouses and I had no idea what to do. And so it's just so, um, it's such a passion of mine now to, to get people to have, to help them understand what it is that we can do to support each other when we're going through this. Yeah. And sometimes even to just, I mean, if you're not a person who has had loss, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you just because you don't really know what to say or don't know what to do. And I think it's okay to just be honest about that. Gosh, this is not something, you know, that's ever been on my radar. Um, It's not something I can know how you're feeling. I mean, let's be honest, none of us knows how anyone else is really feeling in this experience. But to be able to say, you know, I want to spend time with you or I want to, you know, get groceries for you or or whatever it is, it really is, I think, just about showing up, just about sort of being present that, that matters. And, you know, it's not a club anyone wants to join, but I think you're right that when we have joined it, you can sort of tell the person who, who gets it. And you know, that's you know, the that's the crazy part in this moment where you feel so alone because your your one and only is gone. Ironically, that connects you with a whole part of humanity who has also had that experience of being alone. And so this is the strange side of grief where it can make us connect with other people as well. Yeah, yeah. And that collective support. I found is really important um, 
And, and the fact that those people could acknowledge me in my grief, because it felt like nobody understood. Yet yeah. if somebody said to me, you know, for instance, when my grandson was going, coming, you know, and everybody was like, oh, you must be so excited. Mm. Well, I was, mm. but, but there was this grandpa missing and yeah. And then I felt kind of guilty because what grandmother isn't excited about her grandson coming, right? Yeah. Somebody said to me, you know, I know you're probably excited about this baby, but it must also be so hard. Yeah. Yeah. And that just felt so good. (laughs) Yes, to feel understood and and acknowledged. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is part of it. There's often so many layers of feeling that are happening because, you know, our loved ones, they're such a big part of our life and a big part of ourself. And so we do often have sort of many simultaneous reactions. And and that can be confusing for people around us, but it's confusing for us, right? So I think this is part of why an opportunity to sort of just talk through what you're feeling without advice, without judgment, without just even figuring out what it is that you're feeling, having someone who can sort of listen pretty deeply to that and and not have commentary uh, can be really, really healing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's where I found the grief coach was, was yes. huge. I mean, I was so afraid. Yes to go yes (laughs) right well and this is the interesting thing i think you know many of us don't necessarily have a close friend who's been there you know who's gone through the experience before us or or we don't have you know especially if a death is sort of out of order so to speak um not in the natural trajectory of of our lifespan then this is i think where um grief support groups online groups um podcasts are so wonderful because you get to sort of connect with people you may not know personally, but who so clearly reflect what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Put the words to that. And, and, and yeah, that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I have this theory that at the base of all, maybe not all, but a lot of our, um, mental health issues and, and crises, uh, um, is this grief, you know, that we don't, like you say, we don't talk about it. Yeah. So many people are alone in this and they're just trying to figure it out and actually start to think that there may be something wrong with you when you can't get past, you know, the sadness and the despair. And sometimes many, many years can go by and, and you just feel so stuck. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm interested in your thoughts around that. Yeah. I think it is the research that we have been doing, you know, in clinical psychology and even psychiatry, I think has been very revealing. I think it's such important work. So as one example, we know now that even prolonged grief is different from depression. Now, people can have both depression and prolonged grief, um, and people can have depression after the death of a loved one, even if their grief isn't sort of their main issue, especially if they had depression earlier in their life. But the sort of nutshell of how I think about that is 
grief really is about our loved one, right? Even if there's guilt and and anger and, you know, sadness and yearning and all these feelings, um, it really is about the loss that we're coping with. Depression is much broader. And so one way I like to say this is, you know, yearning is not a symptom of depression. Depression is about sort of many things, feeling guilty, feeling worried, feeling you know, things are, are, are meaningless, feeling like, um, uh, difficulty, you know, in, in, in many different domains and many different roles in one's life. And so when we think about those as being distinct, it can be helpful to sort of, if we're, if depression is what we're dealing with, then potentially addressing other issues as well as the grief can be useful. And if it really is about the loved one specifically, and if it has been, you know, a number of years and we're not able to enjoy activities that we know should feel meaningful, um, if we're not able to feel a range of human emotions, you know, both positive feelings and negative feelings, then this can be an indication that it is time to talk with a professional about it who might be able to help us sort out um, what some of the contributing factors are. What are some of the barriers that are preventing us from sort of restoring a more meaningful life for ourselves? Yeah, yeah, and um, I think that's so important. And I I know people maybe would hesitate to to seek out that kind of help, but um, I like to offer hope that yes. lots of times it's not as big as you think. <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> it might right. Might be something that's just you know for me that simple acknowledgement made a huge difference. It it was. It was huge for me. Yes. And yes. so when you think about it that way, you know, if there's something that's plaguing you, um, maybe feeling really guilty or shameful about it, uh, as Brene Brown says, you know, as soon as you talk about it, it's no longer shame, right? It's, yeah. 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 And, you know, I think we we focus a lot on the grief part which makes sense you know i don't i'm not sure if i'm normal and i'm feeling such intense grief but we sometimes forget <laughs> this sounds strange but we sometimes forget that it's important to talk about the death right <laughs> so a lot of people have not actually told someone what they experienced when their loved one died and getting a chance to tell that story to someone who's supportive um, with just as you say the pieces that are so common of feeling guilty or feeling they should have done something else or um, feeling their loved one didn't know something before they died those are really important um, things to sort of get a chance to express because otherwise they do, they sit on the back burner and they contribute to a lot of feelings we're having and we aren't even necessarily realizing that they're doing that. Yeah. 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 And then another thing that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, I feel that there's a real connection still with Blaine, even though he's not here. Yeah. And I know a lot of people have talked about, you know, signs and things that come. Um, I'm just curious about your thoughts around that. Yeah. 
you know, as an as a neuroscientist and psychologist, I sort of <laughs> I pick up once thoughts are in the mind, right? And I can't really honestly tell you where thoughts come from before that. Um, but I do know that what's fascinating, as I said before, when we fall in love with this person, they are deeply encoded in our physiology, in our cells, in our neurons. And so, although I don't know what the answer is beyond our brain, I do know that we physically carry that person with us forever, that they have physically changed us because we loved them and they loved us. And so kind of regardless of where the thoughts come from, the fact that we can call on that person, we, we call it continuing bonds in psychology. The idea that that relationship, that goes on even after the person has sort of left this earthly plane, because they are a part of us, because we can call on them, we can have conversations with them, or sort of look to them for advice or, and know what they'll say, you know, or, or even just um, sort of reflecting on the values that they had and, 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 you know, living out some of those values along with our own. Um, I think that those are important ways that we, what do I want to say, that we appreciate the impact of this person on our ongoing life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can absolutely relate to that because a lot of the things that I do now, yeah. I think about because Blaine was very outgoing. He liked to visit with people. He said, liked to socialize. That was not me. But now mm. here I am, right? There you are. <laughs> yeah. And so it's interesting. You know, I think about him a lot as I do yeah. this work. Um, and He's yeah, coming I carry you. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because in a funny sort of way, then other people in the world get to know him through you. Mm, Yes. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. 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 So is there anything else that you'd like to, to add? Hmm. Boy, I think just sort of the reassurance that I think of it as a learning curve. And so I like to sometimes say, if you feel like, you know, I just can't adjust to the fact that my loved one is gone. You can always add the word yet at the end of that sentence, right? Mm -hmm. I just can't adjust yet. And it doesn't mean that your life won't continue to grow around this loss and incorporate this loss and become something meaningful and beautiful. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, putting yet at the end really changes that, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 It really opens up the possibility and gives hope for something to change in the future. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for taking this time today. I really, really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for bringing this conversation to people. It's so important. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Awaken Your Soul's Journey podcast. We hope that you have found solace, understanding, and inspiration as we explore the information and wisdom that will help you move forward on your own journey. I want to express my deepest gratitude to my special guests, experts, and you, the listener. Thank you for sharing your stories and wisdom. 
If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, please reach out. Make sure you hit like and subscribe. The Awaken Your Soul's Journey community is here to support you. Sign up for my newsletter at www.healingenergy.world or check out the links in the description below. Until we meet again, may you find peace, healing, and transformation on your own unique path. Sending you lots of love. Bye for now.